Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether, here with my co-host, Tina Pippin, and our amazing guest for this month, Dr. Lorja Garcia-Pena. For many of our listeners, Dr. Garcia-Pena needs no introduction. But just in case, let me give you some highlights. Lorgia Garcia-Pena is a fierce, brilliant, and beloved teacher-scholar whose work again and again refuses the false separations between intellectual production, pedagogical care, and public activism. She is the author of three acclaimed books, two of which include The Borders of Dominicanidad, Race, Nation, and and the Archives of Contradiction, and Translating Blackness, Latine Colonialism in Global Perspective. These deeply interdisciplinary texts have won so many awards that I have lost count of them. But in general, critics praise this work for how it, re- how it uncovers and also contributes to long genealogies of cultural production and political criticism within Black Latinidad and women of color feminism, and in so doing reconfigures how readers think about identity, race, nation, and knowledge production broadly. So for Dr. Garcia-Pena, these kinds of arguments and thoughts aren't simply ones to be explored on the page. She lives out her commitments in the many contexts in which she teaches. To hear any one of Dr. Garcia-Pena's students talk about her is to be regaled with stories of a teacher mentor whose unflagging labor and presence has made a way for generations of students of color and student activists, often against enormous institutional odds. For example, as a new professor at the University of Georgia, Dr. Garcia-Pena became one of the founding faculty of Freedom University, which offered free college classes and support for undocumented students who had been um, banned from state post-secondary institutions in Georgia. From the University of Georgia, um, Dr. Garcia-Pena moved on to Harvard, where she played a central role in the creation of an undergraduate ethnic studies concentration. Many of us um, will have heard of Dr. Garcia-Pena because of the international outcry that followed Harvard's denial of her tenure case, um, which actually continues to be appealed and litigated in court, but which, to make a long long story short, is seen by many people as part of a pattern of discriminatory action by the university against faculty of color who dare to criticize its um, norms of whiteness and patriarchy. Now a distinguished professor at Princeton University, Professor Garcia-Pena continues her witness and work to defend feminist scholarship and teaching in ethnic studies. It is this work that we are here to talk about today. Professor Garcia-Pena has recently published a third book entitled Community as Rebellion, a Syllabus for Surviving Academia as a Woman of Color. Published with Haymarket in 2022, this text is an essential meditation on what it means to, quote, teach in and for freedom, and to do so in and through institutions that have often militated against liberation. I can only scratch the surface of 
the praise this book has received. Barbara Ransby calls Community as Rebellion a must-read for anyone serious about confronting institutional racism, sexism, and elitism. Angela Davis calls the book, quote, a life-saving and life-affirming text that charts a fearless strategy for reimagining our institutions beyond racial capitalism, white supremacy, and heteropatriarchy. Whether you are a student lucky enough to sit in one of Dr. Garcia Pena's classes, or you're just someone like us who's been inspired and activated by her work from afar, or whether this is the first time you've heard of her, there is so much to learn from Dr. Garcia Pena's body of work. We are honored that she has agreed to come on the podcast. Welcome, Lorgia Garcia Pena, to Nothing Never Happens. Lorja Garcia Pena, we are so excited to have you on Nothing Never Happens. And um, to get started, uh, we'd like to hear about your own pedagogical journey, what your influences were and are, and um, how you've been moved in, along in your teaching. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, a lot of why I decided to be the teacher that I became is because of lack rather than um, because of example. So being in classrooms where I, as a, a Latina immigrant from the Dominican Republic, always felt invisibilized, um, even when taking courses that you would think should be centering the experiences of people like me. I went to I went to Rutgers, which is a public university in New Jersey in an area that has a very large Dominican population. And I took courses in Latino studies. And even in those courses, um, Dominicans were not part of the equation. So a lot of what I decided to do later as a, as a teacher had to do with the kind of classroom that I create as a student and I didn't have. Um, and then, you know, as, as, I, as I became um, more interested in thinking um, critically about teaching as, as part of my journey, because again, I, I kind of fell into teaching the way a lot of us who go to grad school do, um, because you went to school and you were sort of thrown into the classroom with very little training and very little knowledge. Um, but as I began to read, um, people like Bell Hooks. Um, and as I met through my graduate studies, um, mostly women of color, scholar like Chanda Mohanty and uh, Jackie Alexander and Linda Carty, um, it, was, it was very um, easy for me to see what I wanted to do in the classroom, that what, that what I wanted to do in a classroom had a tradition. Um, that it wasn't just my imagination or my craving or my desire, but rather a praxis of women of color feminist teachers that have been doing work that is more participatory, that is intentional in terms of uh, what we want out of the classroom, not just in terms of um, quizzes and outcomes and the learning material, but in terms of the kind of world we're trying to build through our teaching. Um, that was really affirming to me. Um, and then there was Freedom University, <laughs> which came at a very early 
time in my career, I was a first year assistant professor uh, when we co-created Freedom U. And it was a crash course in, in liberatory teaching. Um, and it allowed me the, the freedom to experiment, if you will, um, in the classroom. So, so it's it's been a crooked sort of coming and going um, experience that led me to to where I am now as a teacher. Um, but I, I wouldn't change it. Since you just brought up Freedom University, let's keep let's keep talking about that. So you mentioned your co-founder, um, and we've we've heard you talk about those classes um, where you said you had the kind of freedom to experiment as the essence of education. And I'm curious about if you could offer us some concrete examples of what sorts of experiments you were able to um, kind of co-create in those in those spaces and in that in that in that um, project that you're carry that you still carry forward today. Yeah, I mean I think it was really um critical for for me as a teacher um, in terms of my my own sort of journey um, in that experience of freedom you were first of all we were all co-teaching and so the and this was my first experience co-teaching um, so the the idea that um, of the classroom being incredibly communal and participatory extended not just to the work that students were doing but also the work that we as faculty were doing and we were coming in the four of us um Bettina Kaplan and Bethany Morton and Pam Vogel were coming from different um disciplines and trajectories and experiences I was a first year assistant professor and Pam Vogel was an associate professor with you know 20 years under her belt and so we all we were all coming from different trajectories and kind of finding a way to work together um, and work uh, with our strengths. And that experience was really rewarding for me. So number one was, was sort of thinking about um, intentional methods of teaching that um, kind of took away the hierarchies, if you will. Um, the second thing that was really important was that because of the kind of project that Freedom Meal was, uh, Freedom U came as a response to a ban against undocumented students. So all the students who were part of our first class were undocumented. And they had that experience in common. Um, and the goal for us as teachers um, was not just to teach, but to create an environment where the students felt safe. And we were very intentional about that because of who we were teaching. What I didn't expect and that became so central to how I teach now is that that is and should be the center of how we teach any population. Students need to first and foremost feel safe in the classroom. And then the learning happens. And so for, for, for me, um, to answer your question, it was less about the particular exercises that we were doing and more about um, what was the central goal, if you will, that we shared as both teachers and students, which in the case of Freedom Meal was first and foremost, students must feel safe. Then second, what is it that students want to get out of, out of these classes? Um, what are the, the, the skills that we collectively think would be helpful and how can we do that together? And so a lot of, of how we taught um, emphasize group learning 
um, thinking about accompaniment, which I write about often, uh, this idea that is it's less about getting your final grade. I mean, the students that were taking our courses, they were not getting any credits. You know, this is not going to go on their transcript. So they were there for the sake of learning. Um, and so once you remove sort of the 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 grade and the transcript and the and and the impact that they may have on ideas of, of related to jobs and career, um, then you're left with something quite interesting and beautiful. You know, it is about what is it that we want to learn together, and how is it that what we're learning together can help us build the world we want. Um, and so a lot of um, a lot of our um, group work, a lot of our thinking, a lot of our writing um, was grounded on, on sort of this basic idea of what is the, the world that we want to co-create. Um, and that that really did shape how I um, how I taught elsewhere and how I thought about the classroom in the different institutions that I that I taught at after Freedom Year. Well, I want to build on this um uh, liberatory moment that you're talking about. Um, you also have said that education is a critical tool of liberation. And also another quote, the classroom is the key to freedom making. So would you name some other specific moments, maybe since uh, Freedom University or things that Freedom University Georgia led you into of teaching and mentoring in and out of the classroom uh, to illustrate your commitments to these liberatory approaches and, and living into that world you want to build. Mm -hmm. And any main resources you want to mention in that for our listeners would would be good too. Thanks. Of course. You know, the context of the quotes that you selected, of course, I'm talking to an um, academic audience. So um, there is so much um, that as teachers and depending on ranks and, and paths um, at the, in the university, we do not control from what, you know, what decisions are made um, at the administrative level to budget cuts to et cetera, right? Um, but what I wanted to insist on is the space, the spaces and the things that we can't control. And that is as teachers, you do have control of what you do in your classroom. And that is not a small thing. That is quite big. And if we, if we, and, and I just want to sort of parenthesis that I don't mean we shouldn't be taking on other struggles that can indeed uh, change the institutions that we participate in and are part of for the better. I think it's a both end, right? That the whole uh, premise of feminist abolition is that we should take both and approaches in which we um, uh, deal with the bigger causes and the bigger issues in our society, but at the same time, look at what are the, the small spaces where we can um, have incidents. And I think the classroom is one of those small spaces in which we can be transformative and we can create an environment um, in which change can happen. And that can look like many things, uh, but starting with the syllabus. Um, who do we teach? Um, why do we teach who we teach? Um, are there, if, if you're finding yourself um, in, a, in, a, in a field that is imagined as predominantly Eurocentric, uh, so some of my colleagues that teach medieval literature, 
or um, you know, 19th century French, um, the, the argument itself was, well, you know, we can't find the diversity and I beg to defer. Right. So what are some of the ways in which you can in which you can have those conversations in, in uh, with your students about justice and liberation, no matter what it is that you're teaching? Um, so figuring out where in the syllabus you can make that impact and how you can let the text, if you will, uh, do the talking for students. The second place is assignments. How, what is it that you're asking students to do? And I'll give you some examples of my, my favorite assignments. So I have one in which uh, I teach on Black Latinidad. And typically, for the most part, almost everywhere I've ever taught, I am either the only one teaching on this subject in the entire university or one of a handful of people. And so I always find myself having to fill so many gaps um, that my, my syllabus feels, always feels insufficient. So I came up with this assignment where I asked students to identify the silences in my syllabus. What did I miss? What is it that is not there? And so they work in groups and they, they love this because you know what students doesn't love sort of catching you on a mistake or what they think it is. The second half of the assignment, which is less fun for them, is that now they have to feel those silences. And so first they identify it. And then in groups, depending on the size of your class, it could be pairs or it could be groups as big as you know, 10 students. They need to work together throughout the semester to come up with a way to include that in the class. And those projects can be highly uh, interactive. They can be traditional papers or they can be archives or they can be podcasts or whatnot. So students identify what, what is missing in the syllabus. For example, there is not enough information on you know, 17th century revolts in Nicaragua. Fantastic, go find out um, where that is. And um, that ends up being one of the most um, rewarding assignments for students. They get to take a lot of ownership of the classroom, they, make, they get to make an intervention, but they also get to understand why when you teach in, in smaller fields, why it is so hard to fill all the gaps. Sometimes the question of language, sometimes the question of access. So it allows um, for, um, for students to also understand the process and, and, the, um, and the challenges that we face uh, as teachers in, in, in the classroom. Um, I, I, I teach um, literature, poetry, performance uh, regularly. And um, one of my most favorite assignments in this class I teach performing Latinidad is that students work together uh, in groups. I do a lot of group work in the classes. I emphasize group, group work. Um, there's very little that we do individually. And another assignment that I really enjoyed for that class is students um, work together to take over a, a part of the campus um, in, in the physical space. And again, I teach college, I teach typically in spaces that are predominantly um, white and my students don't tend to be predominantly white. And so it's, it's very empowering to students to find um, a way to make themselves visible in spaces that tend to invisibilize them every day. So just are, those are just two examples. Um, in terms of the, the overall philosophy of the course, for me, um, it's really important to, um, to read together. So I kind of force students, and they hate me, Fred, for about 
half the semester and then towards around this time Thanksgiving they start to like me again um, but um, there there's a requirement that um, the students um, meet um, once a week to work together in groups uh, reading um, the assigned material and that could be as involved um, as they wanted to be. But the, the impetus of the assignment is that I know once you get together with your classmates reading, then conversations will be sparked and questions will be sparked. Um, and students will, like, will begin to think about it and look about, look, think about the text and think about the subject and look to each other for answers. And there's so much more that they can learn from each other than they, than they can actually learn from me. Um, and so those are some of the strategies that have worked over the years and that I found um, allow students to really build community uh, with each other and, and, and kind of come together to, to learning. I appreciate those examples so much. Um, one of the things I've tried to do in my classes lately is build in an hour a week of assigned time or maybe even using classroom time for students to have um, conversations with each other and build community with each other that's not mediated by me as the instructor because it just changes the way that power is arranged in the room. And um, even if, you know, our podcast is called Nothing Never Happens um, because there's always something happening. And even, even if those spaces feel like they're stagnant or what are we supposed to be doing? You know, we're, we're, we're learning different ways of orienting towards authority, towards knowledge in the room. Um, so thank you for, thank you for sharing that. And um, I, so I am working out a question. Um, and the question is maybe to ask you to think with, with us about a response I hear quite often, um, and it's kind of a double response to descriptions of critical pedagogy or more um, sort of classroom models that seek to rearrange power. On one hand, sometimes when I find myself in like professional development spaces, um, and I'm like, well, what if you experimented with non-traditional grading? What if you like left the classroom as a teacher and like saw what would happen? What if you involved students in co-writing a syllabus? Um, sometimes the sometimes a response that I hear is, well, you can only do that because you're working at a really elite liberal arts arts college. And these are and my students who are minoritized, who are working class, who are um, who are precarious in whatever way. Like this isn't the kind of education that, quote, they need, which I in, I experience as a kind of carceral response that is often sometimes couched as there are not enough resources to provide the kinds of labor that that you know that 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 this kind of teaching requires. On the other hand, I think that it's really easy for people who are not steeped in traditions of critical pedagogy to. Um, to say, oh, well, this is the high standard for education and not everybody deserves it or not everybody can have it, but also to write off more critical methods as elitist methods or coddling kinds of methods that um, both that that don't that don't belong in public institutions in working class institutions and in minority serving institutions. I'm curious 
um, because you you were at Harvard and have circulated in some of these elite spaces, how mm-hmm. you have experienced and navigate, well, one, is this kind of rhetoric familiar to you? And two, if it is, like, how do you navigate the kinds of double standards around um, gatekeeping who can or cannot have access to liberatory models and non-traditional classrooms? Um. I have heard some of this. Um, I it comes from a colonizing imagination, you know, thinking that uh, you know best, and that in order to do uh, non-traditional liberatory learning, you must be equipped with something magical. I guess you know that not everyone has or deserves, and that is just I dismiss it as false. I dismiss it as colonial and frankly, sometimes quite racist. Um, I think uh, because I happen to have um, my entire education was public from, you know, elementary to PhD. um, And because I I started my career in a public institution and my training as a liberatory teacher in a freedom school, um, I tend to be able to, to sort of argue back, (laughs) Um, we have learned these models from community schools. We have learned these models precisely from freedom schools um, that elite universities um, are able to co-opt it does not mean that they own it. Um, And to say that students, I have never met met a student with with a dysfunctional relationship with learning, no matter what age group, you know, and I homeschool my son. So I'm talking literally like kindergarten to PhD, I have never met a learner that had a dysfunctional relationship to learning. They have dysfunctional relationship to classrooms and to institutions because of deep classroom traumas um, that people have uh, had to face. Um, so the, the, the idea that because you did not go to the right high school, uh, quote unquote, or because you don't have the kinds of resources, you are unable to learn a certain way is just false. Um, and um, it, it, it really uh, makes me angry <laughs> that that would be an excuse that would be used to not actually allow students to learn in what they most deserve, which is a classroom that centers justice. Um, I also think at times it's a it's it's a cop out, right? It's a response to not do the work. It is it is hard to unlearn uh, the kind of pedagogies that we've been taught to teach in, right? It requires us teachers to do quite a bit of unlearning and to relinquish power and to understand that it's okay to be questioned, um, and and that sometimes you will make mistakes. It is a vulnerable type of teaching, right? And it's only successful if you're willing as a teacher to be vulnerable. If I am willing to sit in the classroom and say to my students, I don't have all the answers. I actually don't know how this is gonna work out, but I am hoping that you would trust me and accompany me in this experiment of our collective learning. And sometimes it will fail and sometimes some things will not go so well. And I'm gonna trust you to give me feedback um, that will help me teach you better. And these are the kinds of things I say to my students all the time. 
um, that requires vulnerability and also the ability to listen and to understand that perhaps this one assignment that you thought was going to be really cool and was going to work out didn't quite do it. And that's okay. We can regroup and we can adjust. And that's happened to me multiple times. And it's turned out to be usually a very good learning experience, if not for the uh, particular class that I'm teaching for the future version of that class. Uh, but those are those are risks that I think are worth taking um, if we truly mean what we say about we want to decolonize the classroom and we want the classroom to be a space that is safe for everyone and we want the classroom to be a place where people um, work for justice which might not be everyone's goal in the classroom yeah and then for those who are untenured or in that process that of the neoliberal university that you know honors certain kinds of teaching and assessment and publications and uh what do you say to the younger scholar who may have activist leanings or you know they love bell hooks teaching to transgress and really want to live some of that out uh, but are feeling pressure from outside not a bad example <laughs> of of that um I would not say to anyone to take a risk because it is. Um, that is something that they need. That, that's a very personal decision. Um, why? I, I would ask them to ask themselves, why are they choosing to do the work that they are doing? Um, and so if you're choosing to do this work because of um, an ethical commitment to learning, to um, to the world, then I would say, don't worry so much about tenure, knowing that you might not get it. Um, but it is a risk. And um, for me, um, it was a no brainer. I came into this profession because I needed to do this work for myself and for the communities that I came from. And I knew very well that um, transgressing <laughs> uh, could have an impact on my career, and it did. It derailed me for a while. It, it caused me to lose tenure. Um, I was punished by the institution, and that is absolutely something that can happen. Um, so it's a question of figuring out what what can you live with. I I I I sleep really well at night, and I always have um, because of the choices that I've made. And so it, it really is, it really is personal. And I, and I don't think, I don't think anyone is in a position to judge. People make decisions based on so many things um, that we don't know. But if you do, if you do choose to teach this way, and if you do choose to go, I guess, against what your institution requires, uh, it's important to know that there are risks. It's also, important to remember um, that there are no assurances either. You could play by all the rules and never sign a petition for any kind of human rights issue and never support your students and publish and all of that and still not be rewarded uh, with tenure or promotion based on uh, rules that are not written. And so it's, it's I guess it's becoming really aware of, of where your institution stands in, in this matter. I do think in general, um, where we where we tend to see more um, punishment, if you will, of faculty is with um, activism that is public, 
rather than with experimental teaching. So it's also thinking about, is it really, are you really taking a huge risk on your career because you're asking students to do group readings outside of class? Not really. Um, so thinking deeper about how far are you willing to, to go and then doing what you're most comfortable with, but doing something rather than nothing, I think is always better. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I think about the ways that disingenuous advice circulates, advice to professionalize, advice to not sign a petition, advice to not have an SJP presence on your campus, um, because otherwise it will imperil your career in the ways that like, yeah, the it's not even actual careerism. It's like the the specter of professionalization ends up being a preemptive sort of counter-revolutionary um, tactic um, because one anticipates getting shut down. And then like what kinds of educational communities and spaces might we create so that those things are less scary or matter less or the stakes are, the stakes are different. Um, yeah, I, I think I would go back to to the call for um, for feminist abolition practice, right? Um, in which we think about both and meaning creating spaces within the institution, whether it is the classroom or a coalition of faculty that is you know intergenerational. I, I think that's really critical. Um, working with faculty, students, and staff sort of across campus um, and creating spaces outside of the institution that sustains you, both as a scholar and teacher, but also as a human being. Um, I, I tell my graduate students that the way they all, I'm often asked, like, how do you, you know, how do you manage? How do you survive? How do you do this? And for me, it has always been about separating the job from the work. Um, that's really important to me. The work I take wherever I go, it's mine, my classes, my research. That's that's something that would always be mine no matter where I am. And then the job, you know, depends on somebody other than me. Um, and sometimes you change jobs, but the work stays the same. And it's not surprising that that, that I continue to serve the same kinds of students no matter where I teach, from Freedom University to Harvard. Um, I think that says a lot about the, the, the work that I do uh, and the work that uh, students are seeking, uh, regardless of you know, class, ethnic, uh, and regional backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, this, this sounds a lot like uh, some of the discourse going on in study and struggle. Um, and you as a public facing scholar, um, working on um, increasing the foothold or footprint of ethnic studies and decolonized um, uh, courses and um, decenterings, I mean, and centering um, subjugated knowledges and, and all of that. Um, what could you say more about the role of the professor in uh, like, protest and, you know, real, you know, active activism. Yeah. Um, 
You know, I think particularly for those of us who consider ourselves scholars of race, um, ethnicity, migration, human rights, um, colonization, that are grappling with um, subject matters that have that pertain to minoritized and colonized population of the world. And for some of us who actually come from those communities, it's really, there, there really isn't an option to just be silent. Um, it, I, it, I, it wasn't for me, it is not for a lot of my colleagues. How did you respond to attacks that are happening on your campus to communities that be, that you belong to, um, and that you or, or that you study, and how do you justify undocumented students being oppressed on your college campus when you write about undocumented students? How can you stay silent um, in the face of that? So I think that the times that we find ourselves in are, in many ways, forcing so many um, of us who perhaps would not have chosen to have a public intellectual career if you will, to do so, because you cannot stay silent in the face of these kinds of oppressions um, and violence that are affecting the communities you study, the communities you belong to, the communities your students come from. Um, so, and, and, I, and I go back to sort of your question before about how the institution may punish you, what are the impacts, it, 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 that's a reality. If you are a contingent faculty, your contract might not be renewed. Uh, if you are an assistant professor, you might not get tenure because you're vocal, right? You mentioned studying struggle. That is something we saw very clearly, right? With, with some of the folks uh, that were co-founder of studying struggles. Um, so, but at the same time, again, what, what, is, what is the option here? Um, I do think that for those of us who have the protection of tenure, um, we should do more, not only to speak up and to take on uh, in, in internal institutional fights when we're in a position to do so, but also to protect those and speak on behalf of our junior uh, faculty or graduate students uh, who are less protected. And, you know, take that tenure for a walk, um, you know? <laughs> Uh, what is the point otherwise of tenure if you're on if you're not going to use that protection to speak freely? Um, I have a very hard time seeing that, and yet we do see it more often uh, than not. We're seeing it now with the violence and the genocide that is happening in Palestine, and how so much um, there's so much silencing. Um, that happened that is happening in our college campuses across the United States and beyond. And there's genuine fear. I was at a gathering with uh, Latino students yesterday, and we were we were talking about how in a lot of their classes, including courses that are focused on <laughs> decolonial theory, there is no conversation about what is happening in Palestine. How do you justify that? And I'm not here saying, um, that you should be encouraging your students to go out to protest or any of those things, but how do you know have a dialogue in the classroom about what is happening in the world that is that pertains the subject that you're teaching? 
And how do you not stand up for students and junior faculty on your campus that are being silenced and targeted if you happen to be someone who is in a position to do so? That doesn't sit very well with me. Thank you for that. I, um, I'm thinking about so many things um, from, from your Community as Rebellion book right now about the way that you, you describe teaching as a kind of accompaniment. And of course, we've, we've touched on that already. And also in relation to this last question about how you have, how you think about, how you have lived out um, an intervention that ethnic studies as a radical project um, to do knowledge and praxis differently within institutional spaces, whether or not that's the university as such, perhaps it means dismantling and abolishing the university as such. Um, what what's at stake in 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 the project of ethnic studies and in the kinds of relationships that and commitments that attending to knowledges that have been subjugated and silenced like what what are those what are those knowledges that have been silenced demanding of us and i'm curious if you could reflect a little bit about sort of what you've learned and over the last over over your life, but maybe especially over the last couple of years, about what is at stake in this project um, of ethnic studies, and what otherwise possibilities for relationship, for learning, for being together, for um, arranging our resources, um, do you see? Do you see in it? So. First, I want to clarify that um, this is critical ethnic studies as I leave it and define it. And you might find different kinds of projects, right? And some of them are, you know, kind of less political than others. And, it, you know, they have different histories and whatnot. But there, there are a bunch of us who who practice and who see ethnic studies as, 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 a, as a liberatory space. Um, as a as one of the one of the most interesting intellectual spaces of our generation, uh, from more generative, if you will, from where um, some of the most radical thinking um, is it's um, emerging, and 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 by that I'm I'm thinking about Indigenous and Native American studies, and of course Latino studies and Black studies um, and Asian American studies and to some extent, uh, Arab American studies. Uh, and the ways in which we are thinking collectively through different fields and through different angles um, about questions, the, the ways in which colonialism, migration, racism, anti-Blackness intersect and how they're all sort of coming from the same space um, and what the, what the impact of that is for, um, for capitalism and for the destruction of the earth and all of the other isms in the world. So it's really a very, um, important way to think about how we can historicize what's happening to our humanity at this moment, see it sort of laid out, right? But also think about solutions. Um, and I think I'm, I'm ge I generally think this is why the university as a 
uh, neoliberal white supremacist colonial institution is so resistant to ethnic studies because ethnic studies as I practice it, again, critical ethnic studies as I think of it, its task is literally to avoid, to, to abolish the university as is. And how are donors and administrators going to agree with a project that basically tells them you're no longer relevant? We no longer need you. And what, in fact, what you're doing is counterintuitive to the work we wanna do of thinking and learning together. And so there is so much resistance to this project and there's so much co-opting of this project. So we see the constant sort of um, cluster hires coming from the, from the top to the bottom of you know, ethnic studies um, to try and change the composition, but also sanitize them. Uh, and and sort of handpick faculty that are not going to be uh, fighting for uh, these kinds of of structural changes. Um, in in reality, what I would love to see is not is is the the praxis of ethnic studies, the methods of ethnic studies at the center of how we do learning, uh, not just at the university but also at the high school and middle school levels. Um, how we think about big questions in the world through the, sub the, the subjugated knowledges of colonized, minoritized, racialized, otherized people of the world. Um, will the university let us do that? I don't know, but I, I do know that if it doesn't, the university is doomed. We have no future if we continue to do things the way that we have been. Um, it's not just uh, that the neoliberal project is, is literally killing us with labor, right? We're doing more and more and more every day. Jobs that used to be um, a dedicated staff person are now sort of divided among faculty. You know, it, it is so much labor, but also um, what we teach, how we teach it, who we reach and what the goals of our teaching um, are not serving what is needed in society if we don't center uh, the subjugated languages. I'm not interested in, in a project that does not center subjugated languages. And it's not enough to have one faculty member doing this work, clearly. <laughs> yeah. There there is so much to get into here and our time I know is limited and we want to honor your time with us. Uh, is there anything that you want to make sure gets said in, in this um, podcast uh, to our listeners that uh, we haven't touched on yet? I think the, if there's one, I guess, parting, few parting words would be um, that I, I am still optimistic, despite the, the evidence around us to the kind of makes us not be, um, precisely because of what I, what I have seen is possible in the classroom. So I, I guess I would encourage teachers that are listening to, to hold on to that as much as they can. Um, it sounds cliche and, and cheesy, but you know the the impact that 
one class can have on, on a student um, can be lasting and can actually change their world, if not their world. And so to me, that makes it worth it. So holding on to that as we as we face everything else, budget cuts and you know the state of the world and all kinds of things that that we face in our institutions, uh, holding on to that I think can allow us to keep doing the work we want to do despite the challenges. That's a really wonderful note to kind of wrap up on, and I will just say that yeah, in reading in in reading your your most recent book, I was just struck by all of the joy that you described in the, in the communities that you built with, with folks like the, the, uh, uh, the JLo, um, shrine icon on Harvard's campus, like the, the kinds of just like fun and like silliness that is also revolutionary. Like it just makes me smile to to read this to 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 read your work, um, uh, all of your work, but your work on teaching particularly that we're highlighting here. So, um, thank you for like even as we in this have these conversations about everything that's so hard. Like, I am convinced in in learning from you and alongside and with you and from your many students that like how much more there is if we think beyond the structures that that keep us hemmed in. Um, um, so on this note of, you know, everyone please, you know, you know, check check out um Roger Garcia Pena's work. I'm curious um if if we might have this final moment um of our last last question that we always ask on every episode of what are each of us reading thinking with, listening to, cooking, watching, whether highbrow or lowbrow that you might want to um, recommend to the, the the hordes of people who tune into this podcast every month? Ooh. Orja, would you like to go first? Sure. So I actually have right here um, this book that I've been reading, um, Elite Culture, um, which is a hay market book. I am loving it. I am almost done. And I always have a novel that I'm reading because I just love literature. And I'm reading um, Andrew Cruz's new um, new novel, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. And I'm really enjoying it. So highly recommend it. Um, you know, I I need to watch more TV. That is something that I've been, I've been realizing because my... Um, my the last thing I saw um was a very long time ago. Um so I don't have any recommendations uh there. <laughs> so I'll stop I'll stop there. Tina. Okay, I'll go high and then I'll go low. <laughs> low is easier. Uh I've really gotten into reading poetry by Palestinian writers. Mm -hmm. Uh just it I don't it's just helps uh help helps me get through this um time and and be more aware and um since I've I've been to Gaza twice uh not recently but so um so that's the highbrow the lowbrow is I've been watching a lot of comedians I really like watching the craft and how they do the their storytelling and loops 
stories back together. So I've been listening to like all kinds, but I really find funny a 20 something. I think she just turned 30 um, comedian Taylor Tomlinson. Um, not of my generation, but uh, really funny about relationships. She grew up a conservative Christian and is not anymore. And so those connections and um, Nate Barghese, who's uh, Barghese, who was uh, also hosted recently Saturday Night Live. So, um, but other comedians as well, just some work for me and some don't, but just kind of studying story craft through that and getting a good laugh. All right, Lucia. Um, what are you doing? The book that I've been reading slowly, like an essay or two every every day, is um, June Jordan's book *Civil Wars: Observations from the Front Lines of America*, um, which I am embarrassed to say, as much June Jor- of June Jordan's work as I've I've read, I had never read this and was interested in returning to her um, her her you know seminal voice. Um, in the and to think about to think about coalition difference relationships both public and private and how global empire anti-blackness racism misogyny um ramify in our yeah in our most intimate lives as well as on the like largest possible scales and so um I yeah I've been I've I've just been I've just been so taken with the ways that uh, June Jordan's writing can move from like the tension in in a moment of having coffee with a friend who she is disagrees with about political tactic on organizing to um, the Vietnam War and then and back to that relationship with a friend and like what she you know does when she gets home and like I I find I find her able to kind of articulate the the challenges and joys and like pains of moving through um I get of, of being a an embodied person in in political struggle more than more than so much else that I read right now. And, and so I, yeah, that's, that's what I've been reading is, is June Jordan um, these days. Well, Lorja Garcia Pena, we want to thank you so much for being on Nothing Never Happens. This has been delightful and I wish we could have dinner together and go deeper into these topics, but this will um, give a lot of, of hope and joy to a lot of people out there who are struggling. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast and our interview with Dr. Lorja Garcia-Pena. Our audio editor is Aaliyah Harris. Our intro music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music, we're pleased to report, is by our audio editor, Aaliyah Harris, and it's entitled Poppy. After now over six years of running the Radical Pedagogy podcast as a mostly self-funded operation, 
we've decided to open up opportunities for our listeners to support our work. Your donations will help cover the cost for maintaining our website and streaming services, as well as pay for our amazing audio editors and student interns. Thank you in advance for your encouragement and support as we've taken this journey together. Look for us on Patreon.com. And thanks again for listening.